You like my scary slide about the great tribulation with the font, you know, to match it, and so, you know, it's all all on the on the, all on the graphics. That's how you get things uh, uh, going here. I actually like you to grab a Bible, turn on a turn a Bible on, whatever you do, to Matthew twenty four. Starting at verse fifteen. So the Gospel of Matthew, starting verse 15, chapter 24, the, this chapter, the, the, what's in Matthew 24 and some of 25, uh, is also found in Mark 13 and in Luke 21. So these are the three parallel passages. And what we're going to read here, it's what's being called the Olivet Disc- Discourse, because it was delivered on the Mount of Olives. Uh, the, 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 to set it up for you, the disciples have just le- and Jesus have left to Jerusalem on that Thursday night. And they likely have crossed the Kidron Valley, the, the, which is, you know, you go down and up Mount Olives. And they have gotten up on Mount Olives just enough to see over the wall and be able to actually see the temple. Because the... Uh, the Olivet Discourse starts with a question by the disciples regarding what Jesus taught about the destruction of the temple. So Jesus is answering that question. So that's Thursday evening. They're looking back, and they've seen the temple uh, in its glory. They ask the question, and Jesus is answering them. And you find that answer again in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. And those are what's called the three synoptic gospels. Synoptic means seen together. means that they are very parallel, so you can actually see them together. There's a lot of the same things in all, all three Gospels. So uh, they, they include that. John doesn't include this discourse, as, as you remember. Instead of including the, 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 the Olivet Discourse that we're going to read today, John includes what's been called the Upper Room Discourse in John 7, uh, 13. Well, we consider it 2 through 17, though they leave the upper room in the beginning of chapter 15. So two, two discourses deliver on the same night, just within an hour or so from each other. And there are two great discourses and the last night of Jesus before he's crucified. So we're going to start reading in verse 15. And then we're going to come back and address these things. I know my Bible has an editor's title to that section called The Great Tribulation. I don't know if that's what your Bible does as well. And you know that's serious stuff because it's in red, right? Because red, red letters mean more. No, they don't. Uh, verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. 
But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. For the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, here is, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. We're going to stop here. Uh, and uh, we're actually going to consider the whole chapter, hopefully, by the time we're done with our lesson today. I hope you're enjoying this series as much as I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying preparing it. And I think uh, that enjoyment has actually lengthened the series, which seems to be something that all my series suffer from. Uh, getting lengthened uh, through the preparation. And today, we're going to, we, we've said, we, we, we set the groundwork for our study of eschatology. And today, we're going to start looking at the nitty-gritty of historic, or if we want to call covenantal, premillennialism. And as, as a reminder, uh, the, uh, this is not a, we're not going to be debating things, so I'm going to be teaching and you're going to be learning and if you have questions that you want to, you know, just to enlighten you in some area, I'm more than happy to take those. But we're not going to carry a debate on, on the different positions, though I'm more than happy to do that with you on a different time, not during Sunday school. And as we start looking at the nitty-gritty of historic or covenantal premillennialism, I want to start by looking at the, how this view of the end times put things, what's the order of events, and I stayed away from graphics because that associates too much with dispensational premillennialism. I didn't want any connection, even though timelines are, are helpful. But this view sees uh, a great tribulation in, in the future, ahead of us, a tribulation through which the visible church will go. The church is not going to be spared from that. This view also then, after that, sees that uh, after the tribulation, the, the Christ will return. And that was going to be a, a bodily, physical return, not a spiritual, not a figurative return. And at that point, the believers will be raised at the return of Christ. That will be followed by the new heavens and the new earth, so the recreation of the world. And then a thousand-year physical reign followed by rebellion of unbelievers led by Satan, then the resurrection of unbelievers, and then the eternal, final judgment and the eternal state. So that's the order that this particular view understands the Bible. And that's we're going to be, uh, uh, the order we're going to be following as we continue our study. 
Today we're going to try to take a look at the, this first item, the tribulation uh, of uh, that's still future to the church. Any, any clarifying questions before we continue? All right. So there have been three different uh, tribulation systems suggested. And we, we, this is supposed to, we are using the Westminster, symbol, the Westminster symbols to help us and in, in guide us here. But the Westminster uh, symbols, the, the standards, don't mention anything about the tribulation of any sort. And one of the reasons is, is that uh, in some ways the, the Westminster Confession and Catechism are a consensus document. They're not going to address everything, and they're not going to address some particulars because there is a lot of differences in the assembly itself. About a third of the assembly was premillennial, a third of the assembly was postmillennial, and there was a few amillennials and undefined, undefined positions there, so they didn't put anything in about the tribulation. The closest we get to it, this is a representative statement, of how the confession deal or the standards deal with it. This is question 86 of the larger catechism, which asks, what is the communion in glory with Christ, which the members of the invisible church enjoy immediately after death? And this is you know, the one that's our larger catechism has been amended. And it says, the communion in glory with Christ, which the members of the invisible church enjoy immediately after death is, in that their souls are then made perfect in holiness and received into the highest heavens where the, they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies, which, which even in death continue united to Christ and rest in their graves as in their beds. Till, uh, at the return of Christ, they are again united to their souls and live and reign with Him upon the earth a thousand years, whereas the souls of the wicked are at their death cast into hell, where they may remain in torment and utter darkness, and their bodies kept in their graves as in their prisons until the resurrection and judgment of ungodly men after the millennial reign of Christ. And you notice that it just blows through any notion of, of tribulation. And so uh, in that, for that, from that perspective, the standards are not going to be as helpful for this portion of our study as it would be for others. But there's been these three, three systems. One is that it suggests that Christ returns before the tribulation in order to remove the church from the scene prior to the pouring out of God's wrath upon the nations. That's what's be called. And all these positions are in relation to the return of Christ. So this is what's been called the pre-tribulational return of Christ. That Christ returns for the church before the tribulation, removes the church from the world. The nations are judged. The, the wrath of God is poured upon the nations. And, uh, uh, but the, the church is not around for that. There's a mid, uh, a mid, uh, uh, I, want to say, I don't want to say a compromise, but there's a, another view that uh, says, no, Christ is going to return halfway through the tribulation. Well, it's called the mid-tribulation return of Christ. And, uh, um, and he does that to remove the church from the brunt of the pouring of God's wrath. You know, so that there's not as much wrath being poured in the first half, but God's going <coughs> to remove the church from the judgment of the second half of the tribulation. And then the third one is that Christ returns after the tribulation. That's a post-tribulation return of Christ. All three reformed eschatological systems, so amillennialism, post-millennialism, and 
historic premillennialism hold to this view, a post-tribulational coming of Christ, that Christ comes after the tribulation that's described in the New Testament and in some passages in the Old Testament. Uh, this position still allows for the church to be shielded from the outpouring of God's wrath uh, in, in, in a couple different ways. One is, if you look at the book of Revelation, the sevens, you know how you have seven seals, then you have seven trumpets, and you have seven bowls. The sevenths of each series lines up. So the book of Revelation doesn't have the seven seals happening, and then when they're done, then the seven trumpets, and then the seven bowls. They're kind of happening at the same time. The numbers don't all match up, but the sevens do. They're concurrently happening, and the sevens seem to be the coming of Christ in all each one of them. You can look at them later. So when Christ comes to pour his wrath, ultimate wrath, uh, the church is with him. So the church doesn't bear the brunt of God's wrath with the nations as he pours them out. Any questions about these three systems as an overview? Yes, Adam Newton. Will you explore that? Just the last one. I'm not going to... I'm going to say the first two are wrong. We explored it. Now we're going to go to the, the third one. The trumpets, will you explore, explain that more later? Not really. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Because we're not necessarily doing a, a, a series on the book of Revelation. You know, I don't want to spend too much time. But we're going to look at six, Revelation 6, 19 as a whole. But not the individual little elements of it. Okay. Anything else? Yes, yeah, Doug. The seven years, is that always seen as literal seven years? No. No, so um, I do. So it must be right now. Uh, no, uh, but um, there's always a desire to somehow qualify it to a particular amount of time. What I mean by that is that even people who think, oh, they're not seven literal years, they'll try to somehow, you know, in the post mill and the all mill position, trying to boil it down to some sort of period of time that could have been understood ahead of time. Do you understand? Oh, it might not be seven years, but each year might mean a day. Or, you know, there's always trying to, that desire to make that connection. Any questions any other, about the things I said? Not about things I didn't say. Yes, Andrew. I just feel on what Adam said. If there's someone who has a question about Revelation, want to go deeper, is there a particular commentary you found helpful that they could go to? I, I'm assuming you expect me saying that George Eldon Led's commentary. I didn't have one in um, mind. But no, I don't think there's any good, real good commentary on from the historic covenantal premillennial oh, no. position, in my opinion. So somebody needs to write that. Jerry, the gun, Jerry Qualley. Okay. Um, so are you going to, how does First Thessalonians 4? We're going to look at First Thessalonians 4 if we can get there. <laughs> Risa. Yeah, but I stopped at chapter 7. I gave up. <laughs> so you can go back and listen to, through chapter 7 if you want to. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. The, these are the major passages related to the Great Tribulation. And then um, we're going to talk about First and Second Thessalonians in relation to these four passages. But this is the four major passages regarding this, um, this uh, tribulation. And the next thing I wanted to, to show to you is that this great tribulation described in the Bible is still future to us. Okay? 
there are three ways of thinking about the prophecies of the Old Testament as they relate to the New Testament in the book of Revelation. One is to think of the preterist way, that is that all the events, for example, in Revelation 6 through 19, have already happened together with most of the prophecies in the Old Testament and New Testament. And six, the Revelation 6 through 19 is primarily speaking of the fall of Jerusalem in the year 70 of our era, A.D. 70. So everything you see there has been already accomplished um, with some elements of, cha- of chapter 19 being spilled over to a later time. That's one way to consider and think about it. If, so that's the case, and there's people who hold this position then see the tribulation as something that has already happened, not future to us. To us. That's why it's pred, is a preterist position. Preterist means past. Right? When I was learning Portuguese in school, you'd learn about the preterist tense, not the past tense. So that's the idea, that things are in the past. Uh, all millennialists will hold to this position. Post-millennialists will hold to this position. There's one big exception on the all-millennial camp is William Hendrickson. He was a major New Testament scholar, and he did not hold to this position. He thought that the tribulation was still future to, to us. Another way to see it, and so these are the three major categories, is, is that Revelation 6 to 19 are a historical development of the time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. So those chapters are describing the world and the heavens and interactions with, uh, between the resurrection and the return of Christ. So, and some people have tried then to identify periods of history that would fit with the trumpets, for example, Adam, or with the bulls. And the problem with that is that you can't really tie a one-to-one. And the longer history goes, the more you have to readjust your, your views of that. This has been historically a more uh, a view that uh, dispensational people would hold to, or some amillennialists would hold to this, uh, this position. And then the third one is to look at Revelation 6 and 19 as a, as a future event, a future events. They describe events that are still future to us. Are you, uh, any questions about these three ways of thinking of Revelation 6 through 19? Remember, so far I haven't proven nothing. I have not proven anything, I should say. Uh, I'm just trying to first say these are how people have seen it. And now we're going to, the next step is going to start proving, though disproving some things and proving other things. All right, so we continue then. Uh, all millennialists and post millennialists link the Great Tribulation with the, the Neronia persecution and the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. So amillennialists and, and postmillennialists tend to make a big deal about the destruction of Jerusalem and the persecution under Nero. And we all heard of Nero, right? Uh, the picture we have of Nero is this, with an, a, harp, a harp singing over, Jerusalem, uh, over Rome as, as it burns, uh, or as a, crazy, as a crazy guy. But he actually ruled for 12 years. So it had a, for those days, that was a long rule, long reign. And he ruled from A.D. 54 through A.D. 68. And he was a very capable ruler for the first five years of his 
reign. Something happened in AD 59 that, that made that at that point he became a raging maniac. Uh, you know, if you want to see a picture of a raging maniac, it would be a picture of, of Nero. Starting then, he murdered most of his family, including his mother. He kicked his wife to death. He murdered his teacher, Seneca. You may have heard of Seneca as, as a, the, the Latin philosopher. Uh, he wasted the treasury of Rome. And it was during this time, this later portion of his reign, that he persecuted the Christians in Rome, especially after AD 64, when about two-thirds of Rome was, was burnt. There was a fire that burnt two-thirds of Rome, and he accused the Christians of having set the fire, especially to diverge attention from him because most people thought he started the fire because he wanted to rebuild Rome and call it Neropolis, the city of Nero. So uh, historians now are, are convinced that Nero is the one that started the fire and he found a scapegoat, the Christians, to, who are already not liked by the pagans as to blame. And that gave him liberty to do all kinds of crazy things to the Christians. And so he started doing all kinds of different things to them at that point. Uh, the, and the persecution in the Nero was terrible. Christians were burned alive on crosses just to, for, to offer entertainment to his parties. He would... Uh, uh, on party days, when you have a big reception at the palace, you would gather up Christians, crucify them along the road leading to the palace, tarsh, light them on fire to burn alive, to provide lighting for the guests to approach the, the palace for the party. So it was a terrible persecution, but it was extremely localized. It did not spill beyond, beyond Rome. It was localized to where Nero was. So that's the, the, the Neronian persecution, terrible but localized. At the same time, around the, the end of Nero's reign, the Jews in Palestine rebelled. They rebelled in about 65, somewhere between 65 and 66. And Rome dispatched one, their, their most famous and powerful general with his legions to quelch that rebellion. So Vespasian went and, and sieged. That's the right term, right? When they circle the city and stay there for four years. They stayed around Jerusalem. Uh, you know, the, the indication is that people are actually eating dead people uh, in order to stay alive in Jerusalem. And eventually uh, Nero died. There's lots of confusion. And Vespasian was recalled to Rome and he marched into Rome with his legions and became the new emperor and left Titus, his son, to be now the general that was going to overtake Jerusalem. In AD 70, uh, Titus decided to breach the walls and enter Jerusalem, and it was the most terrible destruction of Jerusalem to date. Jerusalem has been destroyed several times, and it was destroyed one more time in AD 135, and uh, there was no rock left upon rock, and, and it was completely destroyed at that time. And these years were of great suffering for the Jewish people. Though most Christians had already left Jerusalem, as we read in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, following Saul's persecution in Jerusalem, Christians 
most Christians other than the apostles left Jerusalem and went to Samaria and other regions, they, even outside of, of Judea. The, and, and, and this interpretation, that that was a great tribulation, does fit with some of what Jesus says in the Synoptic Gospels. For example, in Matthew 24, 16, we, we have all kinds of references to Judea and Palestine, as those things happen in Judea and Palestine. Look at verse 16 of Matthew 24. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So talking about Jesus uses this, this reference here to Judea, and it gives the impression that, that he's referring to things that are happening specifically there in Judea, which would fit the interpretation of the destruction of Jerusalem there. Uh, there's also references to the generation who was listening to Jesus not passing away. Look at verse 34 of Matthew 24. Surely I say to you, this generation would by no means pass away till all these things take place. There's also reference to the desecration of the temple, which means then there should be a temple there uh, for that to happen. And if you look at verse 15, Jesus says, Therefore, when you see that the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. So there has to be a holy place and so on. So it fits with the idea of the temple still being around uh, there as well. Uh, you know, and Matthew adds this. Uh, if, you have a, if you do have a Bible, seriously, that has red letters, you're going to see that the end of verse 15 is in black because there's an editorial comment by Matthew where he says, whoever reads, let him understand. And you read that and say, no, Matthew, just tell us. <laughs> We don't want to figure it out. You tell us. But that's not what the Holy Spirit chose to, to, to give us. But having said that, there are many other elements from the synoptics that don't fit this interpretation. That somehow this tribulation that's talking about is the destruction of Jerusalem and this extremely localized persecution under Nero. For example, in verses 29 and 30 of Matthew 24... The return of Christ happens immediately after the tribulation described in the gospel. Look at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So you can see that in in Jesus' account, the return of the Son of Man happens immediately following the tribulation. And and amillennialists and postmillennialists understand the tension here and see that there's a problem, so they they try to to redefine this word coming. They say that this coming means a spiritual coming, uh, as in the coming of the Spirit, or something like that. The problem is that the word coming throughout the New Testament is used for physical coming. Is the word erkomai. is the, mo- the most common word for coming or going, physical coming or going. And that's how it's used throughout the book of Matthew. So if that's not what, he meant, what Jesus meant here, it will be the only time in which Jesus meant that word in a different way than the other times that he or Matthew used. Another problem of seeing this passage in Matthew 24 referring to the fall of Jerusalem or the, the persecution of the Nero 
is that this tribulation is supposed to be the biggest turmoil in the history of the world. Look at verses 21 and 22. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, to no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. It says it's the greatest tribulation ever, greater than the flood, right? Because it says it's never like this ever happened in this magnitude. Well, the flood happened before, so it must be greater than the flood. Greater than the captivity and exile, where the entire nation of Israel is taken away from the land. So you can see that that, that doesn't quite fit the destruction of a little city in Palestine and the local, terrible but localized persecution of Christians in Rome under Nero. And then one last thing that doesn't fit, that, that this idea that chapter 24 of Matthew and the Synoptic Gospels is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the persecution of Rome is that this tribulation immediately precedes the resurrection. Look at verse 31. Remember, the, the immediately of verse, uh, verse 29 is still governing this passage, right? So start, verse 29 starts immediately, verse 31, And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from, the, from one end of the heaven to the other. Where do we hear again the trumpets being sounded and, and the saints being called from all corners of the earth? Jerry's favorite passage has been acting about for weeks in 1 Thessalonians, which is a reference to what? The resurrection of the body. So uh, this interpretation that the Great Tribulation was the destruction of Jerusalem and the persecution of Nero doesn't fit what Jesus says here in Matthew 24 and then in Mark 13 and in Luke 21. And also it does not fit Revelation 6, 6 through 19. If you read Revelation 6 to 19, which we're not going to do this, this morning, it would actually lengthen the series quite a bit. Uh, Revelation 6 to 19 speaks of a cosmic event that goes beyond a local persecution in Rome and the destruction of an insignificant city in Palestine. Jerusalem might be significant to us as Christians, might be significant to the Jews, but worldwide at the time, it was nothing. Really, is very insignificant. It's just a crossroads of places there. And another thing that we're going to look at a little later that uh, makes so that this interpretation doesn't match Revelation 6 and 19 is that the book of Revelation itself had not been written by A.D. 70. So it could not be prophesying something. Uh, well, if, if it's prophesied, it's prophesying something that already, already happened. Any questions before we continue? I'll pick up on this last thing and then ask, when was Revelation written? Well, we know that it was written when John was in exile in Patmos. That's, um, you see that in Revelation 1, verse 9. We, uh, Eusebius, uh, a historian writing in the 300s, says this. He says, it is said that in this persecution, that is Domitian's persecution, the apostle and evangelist John, who was still alive, was condemned to dwell on the island of Patmos in consequence of his testimony to the divine word. And that's when he wrote the book of Revelation. 
And uh, Justin Martyr, who was writing in about A.D. 150, said this, And further, there was a certain man with us, whose name was John, one of the apostles of Christ, who prophesied by a revelation that was made to him, that those who believed in our Christ would dwell in a, th a thousand years in Jerusalem, and that thereafter he, the general, and in short, the eternal resurrection and judgment of all men would like eyes take place. So these two put John in Patmos and the author of Revelation. Now, in Irenaeus, which is another church father, in writing in AD 180, so just a f not very much time has passed here, also said that John was in Patmos during the reign of Emperor Domitian. And this becomes uh, important. And Irenaeus is especially important since he is in direct line from the Apostle John. So John had a disciple, a pupil, a student, a student studied with him named Polycarp. And Polycarp was Irenaeus' teacher. So you can see just one generation, direct connection with John. And this is what Irenaeus says. He says, For that was seen no very long time since, but almost in our day, towards the end of Domitian's reign, talking about when Revelation was written. He says, so in AD 80, he says, it was just not even 100 years ago Revelation was written under Domitian's reign. Now, to help us understand the significance of Irenaeus' statement, it's, here is a chronology of the first century Roman emperors. And you might think, I thought I was coming to church, not to history class. Well, these things go uh, together here. Uh, so here is a list of, of the emperors in the first century. Uh, Augustus, you know Augustus is the one of Jesus' birth. Tiberius is also uh, named in uh, the Gospel of Luke. Gaius, most um, people know him as Caligula, probably one of the most depraved of all the emperors, and a little crazy as well. He named one of his horses to the Senate uh, as a senator. So uh, Claudius, that's the one that kicked all the Jews out of Rome, that, that Priscilla and Aquila left and then met Paul. And then Nero, he's the last of the Julians. So all these are descendants of Julius Caesar. And then uh, there's a period of confusion where different generals decide to take over uh, and they, they can't do it till Vespasian comes. And then we have the beginning of the Flavians and because uh, Vespasian's first name was Flavius. So that's the name of, the, of the, uh, there. And all that so that we can get to Domitian, who was emperor from 81 to 96. So, and then, well, the Antonines, they're just there because they bring the end and particularly Trajan was probably the most capable of all the Roman emperors. All right, so why is this important? Remember, Irenaeus says that John wrote Revelation during the reign, towards the end of Domitian's reign. So, and he reigned from 81 to 96. So somewhere in the 90s will be towards the end of Domitian's reign. Um, so external evidence tells us the Revelation was written after the, the persecution of the Nero and the, persecution and the destruction of Jerusalem. And then you might ask, how come there's so many super intelligent people who think the Revelation was written before AD 70? As a matter of fact, who think the whole Bible was written before AD 70? Well, the reason is they look at the book of Revelation and they see enough inter internal evidence 
to decide that, you know what, Irenaeus was actually wrong. He got the date wrong. And then they said that, or there's maybe a problem with the manuscript that we have, and the name should not be Domitian, it should be something, something else. But it's driven by, it's not driven by ignorance, it's not driven by lack of scholarship, it's driven by their conviction that the text of Revelation itself would fit better with a pre-AD 70 uh, writing of the book. Uh, of course, I, I wouldn't agree with that, but I think it's important that we understand that that's the case. That's based on scholarship and, and so on. I, I think there are other problems with trying to fit every book written before AD 70. It fits more if we allow the whole first century for the writing of the New Testament. So in spite of these who have argued for the date before AD 70, the testimony of Irenaeus and other fathers, which places the writing toward the end of the reign of Domitian, have convinced uh, those that hold to a, uh, to a different position that the Revelation was written in the 90s. And if that's the case, then Revelation was written after the destruction of Jerusalem and cannot be prophesying it. Any questions? Before I continue, Jerry. How would you address Matthew when it says all of these things will happen before this generation passes away? You know, it's funny because that's exactly the next point of our notes, which we'll have to stay for next time uh, because of time. But this is what we're going to take a look, Jerry. Uh, the Great Tribulation and the Synoptic Gospels and the Epistles, which will address the things that I said makes sense if, you, if, if that's talking about Jerusalem destruction. Correct. Right? So uh, we're going to talk about that uh, hopefully at that, that point. Uh, but I'll, I'll just tease you by saying, think about how the Bible, uh, about prophecy in the Old Testament, for example, often prophesy of a thing as a whole, not in its part. And often prophesy by looking from the end, to, from the accomplished. So, you look from the end, and it looks like you only have one hand, but when you turn it and, and look the profile, you see that there's distance, and there's two hands, and so on. So it's possible that the synoptics are actually talking about both the destruction of Jerusalem and the future tribulation. And that's why we have these different references there. All right? Any, any last question before we close in prayer? All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you are good to us. Uh, we thank you that you have given grace to your church to be able to see these things and disagree in some points and yet keep on pursuing the truth in fellowship with one another. We pray that you would, uh, that you would use this truth that we all agree that Christ is returning and the blessed hope of our resurrection to Cause us to be ready to worship you this morning, that we might join the saints throughout the ages in praising you, your Son, and your Spirit. For asking in Jesus' name, amen.